Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Today, we welcome Archiria Judith Simmer Brown, Distinguished Professor of Contemplative and Religious Studies. Thank you, Judith, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here, Dave. Awesome. So uh, just go ahead and give us a brief uh, introduction to yourself. Thank you. Um, I am a Naropa professor in the Religious Studies Department. I've been here in the same job, basically, for 40 years. Uh, in December, wow. it'll be 40 years since I came to Naropa. Awesome. At the very beginning of the launch of the Religious Studies program. Mm. And I'm one of the last of the founding faculty members to still be teaching at Naropa. Uh, which has been a great gift. During my years here, uh, I came to Naropa as a, a, a Buddhist. I had been practicing Zen Buddhism and had uh, recently been exposed to the teachings of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and I became his student and had the great opportunity to uh, study with him for... Uh, actually, it was about 15 years from that point until he died. Nice. I came to Naropa... Uh, in 1977 as a faculty member. So one of the things that was distinctive about Rinpoche's vision for Naropa is that it would not be a Dharma center where you would just do kind of Buddhist teachings and practice, but that it would be a great place where East mm. and West could come together and the sparks will fly. And it's definitely been my experience of being here, joining academic disciplines along with contemplative practice. Yes, awesome. I'm so excited to see our sparks fly. <laughs> yes, okay, good. so um, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to hear about your topic, and you're going to be speaking on the science and practice of compassion. So without any further ado, go for it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So one of the core things that I learned in my years of Buddhist practice was compassion practices, and those practices have been a backbone of my training and of my daily practice for many, many years. As uh, time has gone on and uh, the mindfulness movement developed and has become so popular in America, one of the things that really has come to the fore is the importance and centrality of compassion and the importance of developing compassion practice as well. So as uh, time has passed, it's become clear that we really need further training and support in order to keep from trying to withdraw from the world and hide mm -hmm. from the problems of the world. There's so much suffering in the world. There's so many difficulties in the world. And people think that they, the only way to develop a stable mind is to run away. But what I've learned in my own training is that that's not the the answer. There's no secret, uh, quiet place away from everything where yeah. everything is going to be okay. We are mm -hmm. all connected with, with each other. As long as there is suffering in the world, I will be affected by that suffering. Mm. And so a group of us became very interested in uh, the centrality of compassion practice and uh, I developed an undergraduate course on wisdom and compassion, which I 
uh, teach as a study of the science, neuroscience, and humanities of compassion, along with the actual compassion training that I've wow. received in my in my own training. Nice. I see the origin of this course as really going back to the 1990s. And uh, when you look at uh, some things that happened in the 1990s, in 1995, Dalai Lama got together with six scientists in Dharamsala near mm -hmm. his home, and they had a kind of dialogue about science and Buddhism. And as a part of that dialogue, he asked the question, you scientists, you've spent all of these years studying uh, human frailty, mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, fear, extreme emotions. Why not study something about human goodness, mm -hmm. human yeah. compassion? Yes. And these uh, scientists, they were made up of a developmental psychologist, a neuroscientist, a social psychologist, an economist, an historian of science, and a philosopher of biology. Mm. And they say that that conversation in 1995 just switched things a bit because they realized that they're always looking for what's wrong with humans yeah. rather than <laughs> looking at what's right with humans. Yes. And so it has generated what uh, is being called the new science of compassion that is going hand in hand with discoveries mm. of Tibetan Buddhism for all of these years. Tibetan Buddhism as a culture has had a very different view of human potential and human capacity than we have in the West. Mm -hmm. There is a fundamental view in Tibetan Buddhism that human beings are basically good and fundamentally kind. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, they've developed incredible aggression and competition and not always the very best of human capacity for lots of reasons. But that if, if we actually go back to the basics, we return to that fundamental goodness and kindness. And in contrast to that, we find in the West, there is a, a fundamental suspicion of human nature. It comes from lots of sources. Uh, some people say it comes from uh, a, an Abrahamic heresy. Uh, some people say that the teachings of original sin got featured much more than teachings of original grace, which is much more scriptural in Christianity. And so from early times, we developed a, a really negative sense of human beings. And then in the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes, in his most famous work, Leviathan, talked about uh, human kindness and human goodness as uh, a fundamental weakness and very suspicious. He called it a Christian absurdity. Yeah. So since Thomas Hobbes, there's been a sense that to be kind or to be, to, to be compassionate is to be weak. And it's really not a fundamental strength of humans to be kind wow. and good. So we have deep in our culture a suspicion about human nature, a suspicion about human behavior and human relationships. And um, these scientists began to ask questions about that, began to say, okay, what is this about? Could it be that we have operated on some fundamental principle that is really uh, wrong and also destructive for the future of humankind? So some of them went back and began to relook at the biology. They looked at primate research, and they looked at all the research that showed that primates are fundamentally violent and brutal 
And they looked at the research again with fresh eyes, and they began to see that primates are very kind to their young and very collaborative within their tribes. And while they do have uh, survival-based aggression toward outsiders, there's a much more documentation of kindness and collaboration among primates than previously has been noticed. Same thing for, for young children. Yeah. Previous research on young children said that young children were fundamentally violent and self-centered, but they've gone back and looked at the research and found that young children have a tremendous desire to be helpful, and they are much more they're responsive to kindness. Yeah. So a lot of these areas of research have begun to say, hey, to what extent did we already jump to the conclusion that human beings are violent? And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, what skills do we need for this phase in our development? Certainly we needed the amygdala and we needed um, a more uh, survival-based approach when we were so close to extinction. But at this phase in the human race, what about interdependence? Mm -hmm. What about the connection between human beings? Isn't there something there that suggests that mm -hmm. the more primitive aspects of the human brain have outlived their usefulness for the most part? And could we not look at developing the other parts of the human brain that are much more about connection and about uh, kindness and about collaboration? So this has launched a whole new field of science where there's brand new science about warfare, about what happens on the battlefield, about what happens in conflict zones around the world, about what happens between people when they enter into conflict. There's, there's much more a study of what actually is going on, raising the question over and over again, are humans fundamentally kind or are they fundamentally violent? And this has just been a very exciting area of research as as things have gone along. In my course, we study the the science, the social science and neuroscience yeah. of violence and also of compassion and kindness. Nice. But we also are uh, looking at compassion training mm -hmm. and looking at what it takes to cultivate this fundamental kindness that human beings uh, possess. Mm. recognizing that we may not come to it very naturally based on our culture and the way our culture is has been geared. And so uh, I teach a 12 to 13 step, step-by-step uh, -step compassion training uh, for my students over a 15-week semester where we work with identifying the fundamental tenderness and soft-heartedness at the, part, at the heart of who we are, and then work on cultivating that toward ourselves, cultivating that toward our benefactors, our loved ones, our dear ones, and then toward strangers and neutral people, and then toward the difficult people in our life, and then toward people who might be even enemies, mm -hmm. and really go into yeah. the really intense social issues of our time. How do we develop compassion in the face of threat and mm -hmm. uh, attack from others? And really, the whole sense is, how do we expand and develop the muscle of compassion in our experience? Yeah. So the course is really <laughs> all about that. And along with this, we really look at uh, our own experience and see what's challenging, what's difficult about this.
So um, it's interesting. In uh, some of the contemporary sources on Buddhism, they say that we are born with a certain capacity for kindness, and then we have rough things happen in our life, and we uh, develop reactions and defenses based on the rough things that happen to us. But that Buddhist training is all about the cultivation of character. Character is not what you're born with, mm-hmm. and it's not what happens to you. Yeah. It's about what you do with that. Mm-hmm. And so Buddhist meditation has at the core of it a sense of empowerment that we can actually shape who we are. We cannot change our genes. We cannot change our previous life experiences. But we can change our reaction to life experiences. We can change our reaction to our genetic heritage. And what we do with that makes us very deep human beings. The spiritual journey is all about what you make of what what you've got. And so beginning to distinguish between genetic heritage, what we, what's happened to us in the past, and what we can do about it mm-hmm. is the core of contemplative training. Yeah. Wow. So this is really <laughs> the core of what we do in this class. We do a lot of experiential stuff. We do mm-hmm. things like taking a moment with my students just uh, two days ago. I asked them to take a moment and think over the last 24 hours. Just, mm. you know, contemplate the last 24 hours. <laughs> and identify a moment when someone was kind to you. Mm. And maybe you didn't notice it at the time. Yeah. Maybe it was so inconsequential. It could be somebody uh, let you in in traffic in front of them. Or somebody in the grocery store smiled at you. Uh, maybe it was uh, just uh, an interaction with a roommate who maybe did the dishes when it was your turn or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some little thing. What? When was somebody kind? And then how did it feel to receive that act of kindness? Did you even notice at the time? So we spend some time talking about that so, because our, our habit is to think about the bad things that happen to us. Mm. Our habit is to think when people slight us or insult us or ignore us. And we ignore all of the kind moments that make our days possible. That even being in school, there's enormous kindness from family and from university and from the environment that helps you. So we are so habituated to thinking about the negative things that have happened to us when somebody has insulted us or slighted us or ignored us. And we ignore all of the wonderfully kind things that make it possible for our day to go on. And our, uh, for my students in school, their parents, the sacrifices that have been made for them to be able to be in school and all of that. So our, my students were very struck by oh my goodness, there were kind things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, hmm, that's very interesting. And it wasn't, when I think about it, it wasn't easy to accept that kindness. I, you know, I'm accustomed to defending myself against attack. Yeah. But how, am I, how open am I to accepting the kindness from others? Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is really a kind of orientation thing about how... We, as we retrain our brains, we recognize that our human life 
is woven with interconnection and kindness. We could not be breathing this moment if it weren't for all of the interconnected kindnesses we've received. Yeah. So that's really, that's really a kind of core of what we're doing with the class is beginning to consider kindness, consider yeah. goodness, consider <laughs> compassion as something that's there in our life, and it's in us, and we haven't paid attention to that in the past. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like quite a class. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Wow. Okay, so I had a couple of questions come Please. up. So it, what it seems like to me is... Um, when you're talking about the researchers and they were they're researching like what's going wrong and and how things vibrate in a weird way and they're doing all this research in in a field of study but it it, it was the lens in which they were looking through to do the research so it sounds like his holiness was offering another way of doing the same research but just looking at it through a different angle so it's like you have a color spectrum you're just looking at a different color but you're not changing the spectrum. So exactly. it's like we both wear glasses. So That's if right. we switch glasses, That's right. we're going to see different things. Our reality is going to be a bit different. So Exactly. Um yeah, just just changing our lens. That that really struck me and I I've been working with that personally and I see I can totally see how that can shift how we are like what serves us now is working from what is compassion? How do we show more compassion? How how can we develop compassion? It Absolutely. is a characteristic. It, it is something we build on. So I really like listening to you say that. <laughs> and it is really true that uh, scientists pride themselves on objectivity, mm. but His Holiness, coming from a different culture that has a different value system and a whole different sort of spiritual infrastructure, he was able to point out the blind spot that scientists themselves couldn't see. And the blind spot is assuming human frailty, human flaw, human problem. And by opening that up, it's made better science. Yeah. And so the scientists are saying that now things like neuroplasticity, for example, the fact that our brains can change. Uh, 15 years ago, we thought the brains were set in adulthood. Yeah. We thought that we... Once we became adults, we just have to cope with what we've been given. Mm. But we have found through the study of meditation, of mindfulness and now compassion, that everything that we do as adults shapes our brains, and our brains are constantly changing right up until we die. Yeah. That is a radical change in science, the notion that change is hardwired into who we are, yeah. and that um, the our lifestyle is shaping our tomorrow, always, mm -hmm. always. Yes. It's radical. It is pretty radical. And Naropa was founded on that. It's just that we didn't think of it in this scientific way. But the notion that yeah. we can shape and uh, craft our future based on our meditation training, mm -hmm. we're now finding that science holds that up completely. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's awesome it is so you're talking about the compassion muscle yes um and the muscle we are using to show compassion is our brains yes um, is compassion located in a certain spot of the brain or is compassion kind of like one of those things where 
it's all over the brain. It can be activated, uh, like the neurons can be activating all over your brain. Or is it actually located on the left side or the right side? Or It's not so much left and right. And again, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't really tell you the names for the different parts of the brain. Okay. But they found that uh, more on the front part of the brain is where there are feelings of overwhelm and paranoia and mm. a kind of shutting down quality, but a little bit more toward the crown of the head and is where the compassion is. If we learn to open to intensity and negativity in our world without losing the quality of warm heart, mm -hmm. we have the ability to be, be more resilient, have enormous stamina, have a, a feeling of connection rather than overwhelm and burnout. So yeah. one of the most important things they've found is the importance of compassion training to prevent burnout. And it is something we're working with very actively in some of our research projects here at Naropa, yeah. recognizing that compassion training could help activists uh, not burn out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. so we're doing some research projects based on that. Yeah. Isn't it weird how love can make you go so far? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, we tend to think of ourselves in terms of love as either we have it or we don't. Yeah. And we don't realize that we can grow our capacity to love, which is what compassion training is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always like the idea of redefining a definition. So the definition of love, what does love mean to you? And as you get older, your characteristics set in, you're changing them, you're going through life. Why aren't we changing our definitions? You know, maybe changing exactly. the definitions is part of becoming a better character and developing our characteristics and, Very and part, much of, so. part of compassion. You know, it's like as a young child, you, you realize what compassion is at a young age. And then as you get older, you develop more, um, you entwine with more interactions with people, your society, your community. And then you can kind of redefine what that means to you. What does compassion mean to me? And it's true that if without training, we can close down and be much more brittle. But with some kind of training, we become more and more flexible and more and more open. So in order to really fulfill our human capacity, we need to begin to explore the expansion mode more than the, than the contraction mode. Yes, awesome. Okay. That's what neuroplasticity is all about. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that idea. I've, I've done some like neural looking into and it and it's really interesting to think that the neurotransmitters are like creating a rut kind of like a car creating a rut in the mud but the car can go in any direction it's just That's choosing right. to like follow this one all the time so if if we can kind of like conceptualize what does a neuro take a different route like, or could you open the road to more possibilities yeah. so that you could actually not be in such a narrow path but mm -hmm. in a wider path yes Cool. Yeah, it's really great. All right, so I got one more question for sure, you. Sure, please. So we talk about, it seems like lately there's this talk of the mindful movement. It's it's this new thing. It's this new science. Um, a lot of people are working with it. A lot of people are talking about it. Where do you think it started from? Why do you think the mindful movement started? Where do you think it's coming from? Why now? Could, could you speak on that? Well, there's some scholars that have done some tracing of the origins of the mindfulness movement, and they trace it to the first summer of Naropa in 1974. Wow. And uh, a, a scholar from Oxford University Press has mm. cited that Naropa 
1974, first summer, was the birth of the mindfulness movement. Part of it was that some of the people who'd been classically trained began to have a broader exposure through places like Naropa so that they weren't just in some kind of little fringy cult, but they actually had a chance to share mindfulness much more broadly. And it's really John Kabat-Zinn, when he began to join science in mindfulness, working with chronic pain patients at the University of Massachusetts Hospital, that it began to really catch on in the medical community. But then you have people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who taught mindfulness very broadly to Vietnam vets. And, you know, the whole thing began to grow in little pieces. But when science and meditation came together, Mm. somehow I think we as Americans don't believe something's true until science says so. And so it helped it go mainstream. I think the same is true for compassion, that the more we understand the science of compassion, the more confidence we have in compassion meditation to really affect our world. Wow, that's so amazing. Yeah, it is really amazing. So I work in collaboration with scientists. I'm not a scientist myself, but Mm -hmm. I'm a longtime compassion practitioner and teacher. And to be able to join these in conversation has just sort of awakened all kinds of new perspectives for me that has really been rich at this time in my teaching career at Naropa. That's so great. Thank you so much for sharing your kindness and your wisdom and your compassion. Thank you so much, Dave. This has been a great pleasure. (laughs) Awesome. So thank you to our distinguished professor of contemplative and religious studies, Judith Simmer Brown. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.